0: Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we chat with researcher Jonathan Way about spatial reasoning, why spatial assessments don't show up on standardized tests, and Carmen's plan for rearranging his local deli counter. The Engineering
1: Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen
0: as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is Episode 80, Spatial Reasoning, April 16th, 2015. So Adam... Where do they teach civil engineers about designing those cloverleaf loop de loops that always take you in the wrong direction before getting you pointed in the right direction that you wanted to go in the first place?
2: Well, there's a very important class for all uh all highway engineers, a Maze Construction uh 101, uh-huh. uh, on how to make things as complicated as possible, right? Uh and especially, you know, how to be really confusing in in providing direction. Right? Right. Well, I'm always getting off the, you know, off the
0: interstate, and I think I want to go, you know, west, and then I'm suddenly going east. And and I never know exactly how f- far east they're going to take me before they eventually turn me around and have me going west.
2: Yeah, that's about right. You know, sometimes, you know, in order to get through something, you got to go the other way to get up, over, and or under, or, well, through, or whatever you have to do to <laughs> get... To- <laughs> I guess over and under are really the only two good options, um, through the other, the other traffic. And, and it, uh, it leads to a lot of confusion and, and, you know, giant spaghetti mess. And, um. So, so is there
0: an algorithm that somebody's going through or somebody just sort of laying out what looks good on the, uh,
2: on the board? Uh, for the most part, it's, Somebody by hand figuring out, okay, I've got to get this movement from northbound to westbound to fit, and here's what I'm going to try to do.
3: And By hand, hmm. you've been using a spirograph and just seeing what kind of <laughs> where the lines intersect? <laughs> 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 uh,
2: I, I, I wish. Uh, no, in reality, it's it's pr- at least most of them I've been involved with have been literally a, a pen and a paper just trying to figure out, oh, well, if I do this, I can get this this movement and they all just kind of fall together eventually um and trying to keep it to uh only a couple of, of levels of horizontal if possible although that doesn't always work out right
0: well so it's it's uh evident then that you need a a certain amount of spatial reasoning in order to lay out the uh the clover leaf.
2: oh ab- absolutely yeah it, it much of civil engineering is about spatial um Understanding the spatial relationships between various things.
0: Right. And so, uh, that's our, uh, topic for this evening is talking about, uh, spatial reasoning. And, uh, so I, we, we had on a recent episode, we had, uh, Dr. James Trevelyan, who had written the book, The Making of an Expert Engineer. And I had come across a table that he had, uh, talking about the various, uh, engineering disciplines, the main disciplines. And he has a column in this table, uh, which is table 2-2 two, two, for those keeping Track at home. Uh, a Uh 3D spatial thinking. And he's, you know, civil, structural engineers. Yes. 3D thinking. Geomechanics. Yes. Mining. Yes. Hydraulics. Some. I don't know about that. I would think that you need some, you know, uh, spatial reasoning in order to f- make sure that your pipes got to the right location. Uh Materials. Yes. Mechanical. Yes. Manufacturing. Yes. Mechatronics. Yes. Software. No. Oh, that surprises me. I thought I, I, somewhere I thought I read that software engineers do uh, benefit from good spatial reasoning skills. I think but, you just watched the well, matrix. <laughs> <laughs> that might be it. We'll, we'll ask our guests this evening. Uh Aeronautical sum. Again, it seems important to me, you you know, where to put the wings. Uh, electrical power. No, but again, in every, you know, electrical box I've ever designed, you have to know, you know, where things go. There's some, there's some spatial reasoning there. Electrical instrumentation. No, I think that's wrong too. Uh, telecommunications, no. Chemical, no. Environmental, yes. Petroleum, some. So m- maybe not for all fields or all forms of engineering, but it's, for a lot of fields of engineering, spatial reasoning is a very important skill. So did you guys have any, uh, any training or evaluation of, of spatial reasoning skills when, when you were in school?
3: No, can't say there was a class on that. It's one of those trial by fire things, you know, spin a PCB board because you, uh, didn't leave enough clearance for the test tool. (laughs) But I don't know anyone who's recently done that.
0: Yeah, sort of learn. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of learn by error. Yes, yes.
1: I've had to work quite a bit in three dimensions for, and I think it's a bit out of the ordinary for electrical engineers, but I've had to do quite a bit of optics work and, uh, at least early on in circuit board design. You can't escape. The Z axis and you know multi-layer
2: twelve
1: you know twelve layer boards I think require quite a bit of spatial reasoning.
2: Wow, I mean I I can deal with pretty much infinite uh, directions in the dimensions in the in the Z, and I tend to try to keep it to two. (laughs) (laughs) Road thing goes under road, right? Right. Well,
0: and one of the reasons it may not be talked to us too much about in in engineering classes is, uh, here's a quote from uh, Cheryl Sorby, who's a professor at Michigan Technological University. Uh, Most engineering faculty have highly developed 3D spatial skills and may not understand that others can struggle with the topic they find so easy. So it, it may be the general assumption that we all have these 3D spatial skills and uh, uh, not too much time is spent in developing them. So tell you what, what instead of us guessing at it, uh, why don't we introduce our guests for this episode? Uh, it's a uh, Dr. Jonathan Wei, a research scientist who writes about developing expertise in both educational and occupational settings. In addition to his academic articles, his writings have appeared in Psychology Today, the Los Angeles Times, Forbes, Education Week, and many other magazines and newspapers. He is a contributing writer for Psychology Today, Business Insider, and Quartz. John, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're so pleased you could join us uh, for this episode. So how did you get interested in the development of uh, technical expertise?
4: Well, you know, my dad was actually an electrical engineer. Um, My mom was a physicist, so naturally they hoped I'd take a similar path. But uh, I was a math major. Um, To their excitement, I'm sure I ended up in psychology. So here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um but, but you know the the their cultural value and respect of STEM fields and engineering and um that really even though I didn't fit me personally, I think it it really stayed with me. That's probably why I actually study it to some degree. Yeah,
0: and so how did you get uh how did you make the transition from mathematics to psychology?
4: Well, you know, I always had an interest in psychology. So I think I think math was just something that I liked too all my life. And I actually started out as an engineering and wanted to do uh management engineering. But uh okay. dropped the engineering part after I realized I wasn't uh, probably as spatial as I wanted to be in terms of mechanical mm. hands-on sense.
0: Right. So, so uh, since the, the topic for, for this episode is spatial reasoning, can you tell us what spatial ability
4: is? So I'll give a very specific definition. I'd say it's three-dimensional um, reasoning, and that specifically could be considered the ability to generate, retain, retrieve, and transform
0: well-structured visual images. Mm-hmm. And so, is we we were sort of speculating that this was an important skill for engineers. Is it in fact something that uh, a good engineer needs? Yes, and that Sor- uh, Cheryl Sorby
4: quote is actually spot on in the sense that um, engineers, and this is uh, an appendix in my paper actually um, with David Lubinsky and Camilla Benbo on spatial spatial ability across fifty years, um, looking at the actual average verbal, spatial, and mathematical abilities of engineers relative to everyone else, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, engineers actually have the highest spatial and average across the board. Hmm. And I think, I think it's because, you know, a lot of engineers just don't, they take it for granted, you know, um, they also actually have high verbal abilities compared to everyone else
0: too, which
4: is, goes against
0: the stereotype, I think, but,
4: um, yeah, it's interesting.
0: And, and so do we know if the they arrive at college with these spatial skills already intact or there's something about the engineering curriculum that that uh, develops these skills? It's probably a little bit of both, right? And
4: we can talk about training, spatial training. That's one of the hot areas of research in psychology right now, actually. But, but certainly, you know, I think the, a lot of the school system actually doesn't test for spatial ability. Um, and also, there's not a lot of training going on within schools. I mean, I guess... Shop classes and other things like that, perhaps have some training component, but mostly there's a lot of focus on math, verbal reasoning, writing, you know, speaking, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, as you go through the literature, you you come across these these terms, you know, spatial visualization, spatial thinking, spatial reasoning, spatial ability. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any difference in these terms or are they all referring to the same thing? So so
4: I use the terms fairly similarly, I'd say. And and I think uh, important to keep in mind, of course, is words are really labels. And um, so, so of course, what matters is what we can actually measure. And I think engineers would hopefully agree about that. Um, in this case, mm-hmm. psychologists use a term called a construct. It's a theoretical kind of uh, basically uh, – Framework? A, yeah. It's, it's, it's just like an idea um, – Basically, uh, constructs. So spatial ability is a construct. Um, general intelligence, if we get to talking about that, would be a construct. Math ability could be considered a construct. Um, and that can be measured through like things like paper and pencil tests, for example. Um, or a hands-on mechanical test, for example. And that's just, these are indirect measurements because we're trying to get, get at properties of the brain. For example, we can't, you know, engineers can actually go in and take a look at things, right? Um, but we can't really get that kind of precision. We can only go get it indirectly through a reliable and valid standardized test, for example. Um, so, so of course, you know, researchers, for example, I would point uh, listeners to the work of David Lohman. He's a retired professor at um, at the University of Iowa, and of course, uh, my my colleague David Lubinsky has written very extensively about spatial ability. But you can actually splinter the general construct of spatial ability into more specific skills. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually variation among strengths, even within the general category, and then with all the subdomains as well. So, what do you mean by the
0: general category and the subdomains?
4: So, when I'm talking about spatial ability, I'm talking about um, just spatial ability, three-dimensional reasoning broadly, um, and the ability to use that across you know many different kinds of tasks. And I think there's 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 more you know specific types which I probably won't talk about here, but. That's why I was pointing people to other work. But my work really has been about the general construct of spatial ability relative to math and verbal. For example, like the SAT, for example, has a math and verbal subtest, right? But, and a right. writing subtest, but no spatial subtest.
3: What would the spatial subtest be? Like a Rubik's Cube?
4: Um, you know, <laughs> it could be a lot of things, right? Um, you know, it's really, there are actually, there's a, there's a really cool mental rotation test looking at like cube snake figures. So it's kind of like an unpackaged Rubik's Cube. And then you oh, okay. kind of figure out you know like if you rotated at ninety degrees, what would it look like, and you get four choices um so that's I actually a, think' that's I one taken
3: taking, taking a test like that like an i q test or something that was baked in,
4: yeah,
0: so it's probably a spatial component of an i q test yeah hmm so one of the things I came across in your papers was that was new to me at least was the idea that there was a um a, a sort of general intelligence core. Right. And then there were these, these, you know, verbal, mathematical, and spatial reasoning abilities that sort of, I guess, wrote on top of those or piggybacked on top of those. Could you tell us a little bit about the, you know, the general idea of, uh, of having this sort of core of general intelligence and then these other abilities that, that, uh, attached to it? So to briefly describe, uh, so in the field
4: of psychometrics, and this field of intelligence um there's something called the hierarchical model of intelligence and at the top of that model so so basically the idea is there's something called general intelligence and it's measured pretty much by any mental test um and to the, to the extent that um you, you get a stronger measure of g if it includes many different measures of abilities so say a measure that includes math verbal spatial memory um you know many other different things. You get a get a stronger measure of G. And at the at the at the apex of this entire hierarchy is general intelligence. Underneath that, in the second level would be things like math, verbal, spatial, and all those tests are correlated because of general intelligence. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's easy to Google. You know, general intelligence. If anyone's interested in the actual hierarchical model
0: and things like that. Okay, so mm-hmm. so this general intelligence or G, as it goes up or down sort of your ability and all the other areas are going to go up and down but oftentimes but not always so for example any okay. an individual can have
4: very high spatial ability relatively speaking to their verbal and math um, and, th- and th- that's an example of a student for example who would you know not
1: perhaps be missed by a verbal math test mm-hmm. that makes sense so how do you, how would you differentiate between innate ability and I guess you might say skill and training It's a good question. So all abilities are
4: developed, you know, it's not like we're born with them. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. at the same time, there's probably a range, um, for each individual, um, where, you know, you can probably develop up to a point if you had certain propensity. Um, so, so I would say we all have our certain propensities, right? Um, maybe it's due to partly due to our environments, you know, maybe our parents were engineers or maybe they weren't at all. Um, and maybe we had certain experiences in, in school or not. So, is this, does that answer your question? Or?
1: Well, it's just when, when the layman hears intelligence, mm-hmm. they may think of innate ability. Right. And when mathematical ability is lumped into intelligence, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. you know, people may have the potential to be mathematically brilliant. But they so much of mathematics is simply training. And... Right. Um, con- uh, the constructs associated with various, you know, either algorithms or problem-solving techniques. So it's
4: so you're trying to differentiate. So,
1: so I, so intelligence versus skill. Okay.
4: Yes. So, so you mean the skill to be a mathematician versus the ability to be a mathematician? Is that is that what you're trying to get me to yes, distinguish? Or
1: or or how does how does a characteristic such as math or uh, a measure such a such as mathematic ability? Mm-hmm. Uh, fit into intelligence? So, okay. Good question. So,
4: so math ability, what I mean by that is basically any standardized math test will measure math ability to some degree. Um, in some of my research, for example, we use the SAT on 12 year olds, um, because the math measure typically designed for 17 year olds used at age 12 functions, much more as a raw fluid reasoning test, if that makes sense. And And I would first say that intelligence, I don't think anyone Thinks that intelligence is actually innate. Perhaps the public kind of thinks that, um, but obviously it's developed, right? I mean, you, it's, all our abilities are developed. So, I, and,
1: and I guess yeah. that's that's a key point. That was, and I, I wanted to stress the layman's view of intelligence,
4: right? At
1: the same time, or my would, or my view of intelligence, <laughs> right? At
4: the same time, I would say not everyone can be a mathematician. That doesn't make sense because. Um, at least in terms of performing at the highest levels of mathematical research, like Terry Tao, for example, um, who was one of the great prodigies and aced the SAT when he was like eight years old or something.
3: (laughs) Do you always, uh, do you focus just on the technical skills like engineering or do you apply your research to, you know, like sports and stuff too? Um, obviously spatial reasoning pays a, plays a huge part in sports as well.
4: I actually haven't done the studies on sports, but I I think there are some studies out there showing that spatial reasoning probably is connected to it. Yeah,
3: yeah, like you and Brian were just talking about, you know, anybody can go out in the backyard and throw a football or kick a soccer ball, but, you know, to compete at that pro level, you just have to have, you know, what most people consider generally higher ability to play sports.
4: Right, yeah, and there's general athletic ability. Um, David Epstein wrote a great book called The Sports Gene. I don't know if you guys have heard of that book.
3: I feel like I may have heard it in passing if it was mentioned on five thirty eight one time or not.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um he that book is great because it talks about how speed, you know, kind of functions very similarly as general intelligence in the sense that like sprinting speed, for example. Um mm-hmm. it's very difficult to train that uh oh, yeah. to some degree. Um also like the just uh the speed, there's other other types of endurance, um weightlifting, how much can you bench, you know, stuff like that. So um, which is, has a component of training, obviously, too. So, oh,
3: yeah. Yeah. I remember back in my high school days running track and, you know, when I was a freshman trying to figure out what I wanted to run, it was, you know, I'd practice coming out of the blocks over and over again. But no matter what I did, I was always smoked in the, the 50 yard dash or the 100 yard dash because I just couldn't, couldn't function as a sprinter. But I was, I came into play more in the, the mid ranges, like the four to 600, where you had to balance off speed and endurance. Mm
4: hmm.
1: So is the signal of noise, uh, for measuring spatial ability a little bit better than say mathematics because there's probably little formal training that happens.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Um, you mean in terms of being able to just visually see stuff and put things well, together it, and take them apart? If,
1: if you're looking at, yeah, I, I, I will say this as dumbly as possible, but, uh, if you're looking at just innate cognitive characteristics Mm -hmm. you know at much as we said i said before like you know innate ability versus training Mm -hmm. there's very little training that happens or formal training i i might guess so you're looking more at the raw behavior of people's brains as opposed to you know trying to differentiate between somebody who's got tremendous innate ability and a little bit of training or moderate ability and just a tremendous amount of training
4: that's an interesting point. I would say that in some cases, that's probably true. Um, I would think, though, that say, for example, a child picks up a mechanical object, takes it apart, puts it back together, um, that, that the working with the hands would also help the visual spatial skills, too, right? So it's uh, it's a little bit of both. That's the development aspect, I would say. I don't know.
1: So, So that would represent a form of training?
4: I think so. Yeah, development of the ability, right? Um, see, I mean, a lot of scientists talk about how they think with their hands, right? I don't know if that's true for you guys, but
1: yeah. oh, I definitely do. Okay. Oh yeah,
3: mm-hmm. I play with a slinky while I, I look at layouts or whatever. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Yeah.
0: So if we all have these uh, these abilities—math, uh, verbal, and and spatial—is mm-hmm. uh, there any characteristic pattern for those of us that are engineers? Is one you know, are we always better at math or always better at verbal or something like that?
4: Yeah. So, so listeners, you can, you can Google this, uh, article that, uh, that I actually, it's, it's called This Chart Shows Just How Much Smarter Engineers Are Than Everyone Else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't headline that, but, but that's the name of it. And the, it is the graph also in my paper, uh, Spatial, Spatial Ability for STEM Domains. And in mm-hmm. the appendix on page 834, um, you can basically see the profile of engineering versus everyone else. So. Okay. And it shows that engineers actually have the highest within engineering. It's highest math then spatial and then verbal is lowest within engineers as a group. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. And, and so if, uh, if, uh, sort of the tendency is to have the, the higher spatial than verbal scores uh, for engineers. What, what, uh, what's the general trend for those whose verbal scores are higher than their spatial scores? Um, Let's You mean what field? Yeah. I mean, generally do they, are those the people that go into humanities or?
4: Yeah. So I would, I would say that humanities more have a verbal,
0: higher verbal, lower math profile, lower spatial profile. Mm -hmm. That's probably true. And, and again, I'm, I, so I'm, I'm again curious if, if that is a tendency as they, you know, as young adults, as we get to, you know, we're in high school and we decide what we want to do, whether that is already evident or we choose our career and then it becomes more evident as we've gone through the training of, of, uh, of college.
4: Well, you know, I, I would say that, um, our ability patterns, you know, however they're developed, um, mm-hmm. whether we, you know, invest our general intelligence in different areas, um, whether, and of course we're talking about abilities and of course there are interests too. Um, there's a huge thing, uh, people versus things to mention, the psychologist measure, um, where engineers typically on average tend to be more interested in things rather than people. Um, hmm. I'm shocked. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is true. Although there are
0: super social engineers that love people too, you know, so. Right. Yeah, my, my attitude was that, that engineering was a good thing because I didn't have to deal with the, you know, the messiness of biology or the messiness of, of, uh, personal relationships. You, you know, the equation was the equation and the, the circuit either worked or it didn't or the, you know, the, uh, the mechanism either worked or it didn't. That seemed like a, that seemed like a wonderful thing to me. Okay. And, and is there any difference in, in the, you know, the spatial reasoning skill we, we went through uh, the the list in Dr. Trevelyan's book about, you know, some areas needing spatial skills and others not. Is there any research that shows any evidence that certain fields of engineering uh, require greater spatial reasoning? So you mean within engineering itself or across different disciplines? Do we have any evidence, uh, research evidence, that indeed electrical engineers have left Less spatial reasoning skills than, say, a mechanical engineer might.
4: So, the only evidence that I have within the paper is on in figure. Let's see, if you look at figure two and figure five, you'll see that the right pointing arrows in those graphs are basically showing the spatial ability um, is highest for engineering relative to groups. And then, All right. let's see here. I will say that um, I don't know about the specific subdomains of engineers. Um, My immediate thought is mechanical engineers would be the highest spatial too. Um, However, I'll I'll give an interesting counterexample in a sub-analysis. For example, surgeons in the medical field, you assume they'd be the highest spatial as well, right? Um, You would. But it turns out that academic researchers had higher spatial than surgeons. So maybe in academic research, um, for whatever reason, spatial visualization matters a lot. I'm not sure why.
3: Yeah. See, that could also be... Uh, it, just to you know kind of throw it out there, maybe you know uh mm-hmm. just the ability to you know your surgeon you <laughs> you could just get it get your hands in there and dig around and you know see how it's put together and physically touch things, but you know in academic research you uh you know you have to be more abstract just because of the nature of the work and you know that's you get true. better at simulating in your head um, that's a good that's a
4: great hypothesis, yeah, I
1: would agree with
3: that, yeah, yeah kind of like with electrical you know i can i can look at a schematic and yeah, I can put my oscilloscope down and probe, you know, signals and see them, but it's it's very hard to physically manipulate them, you know, in a in a given circuit, unlike, you know, tweaking some gears or you know, you know, taking a wrench to something. Uh so it, you know, one could hypothesize that yeah, you need more spatial ability to visualize what goes on in a circuit than having a machine in front of you, but hmm. I have nothing to back that up. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, as programs get better, right? It'll be yeah. interesting.
3: Yeah. I just want to make myself out to be the best.
4: <laughs> so I'm wondering, is, is there any data um, from spatial, on spatial ability from engineering departments in the past? Um, I heard some, some departments did actually include spatial measures to for incoming freshmen at one point. Um, and that would actually answer the question. If they had that data and you just split it by discipline, you could actually measure the differences.
0: Right. I, I have read, um, some of the engineering education, uh, literature has talked about using spatial reasoning as a means of trying to predict the success of engineers and not to, not in a means of, of screening out engineers, but once they're in the program, trying to predict which engineers might have difficulty, mm. uh, because the evidence is that those who have stronger spatial reasoning skills are more successful and happier, uh, in the engineering education program. That makes sense. And I was going to ask you, so it seems to me along the way I've heard that musicians have strong spatial reasoning skills and that uh, software programmers tend to do better if they have spatial reasoning skills. It, does this ring a bell with you, John, or is am I just remembering incorrectly?
4: I, I think that's true. Um, definitely software engineers, I mean, they're part of the STEM disciplines, and STEM typically mm-hmm. has sp- higher spatial across the board. Okay, I think that probably depends on how someone codes too, so –
1: Right Do you mean well or poorly <laughs> uh,
4: Yeah, not sure yeah.
3: <laughs> So if you come in, you know you say you join in engineering, um, you know is there a higher dropout rate for uh, those engineers who don't have as high as spatial skills? Are you, are you doomed to failure if you can't uh, solve a Rubik's cube in your head or you know do anything crazy like
4: that? You know, I, you know, I think most people will, you know, for example, say my example, right? I I started as an engineering major. Um, I would say it's, you know, we, I would always say that it's, oh, it's not, I'm not interested, right? Mm-hmm. But, but you know, our, our ability profiles, whether we like it or not, they do influence our interests too. So it's combined. It's like all tied up. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, people will leave if it, they seem to be doing better somewhere else, right? Um, and they'll see how they're doing compared to everyone else in their class. So yeah, certainly. I'm sure. I'm sure it contributes to people dropping out, without question.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, before we get all doom and gloom, uh, <laughs> are there are there any exercises that you could do to you know improve your spatial reasoning?
4: So you, you play with right? You know that online. Oh yeah, online yeah they game. make all
3: the claims. I think they sponsor yeah, yeah. Pragmatic.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no evidence oh. for any of that stuff. Um, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> they claim that they, uh, they, you know, you can raise your IQ and stuff, and yeah. you know, as you get older, you'll. Maintain all your brain power. Um but no, I mean in, in all seriousness, no, of course. I think, you know, mechanical projects will train, yeah. keep keep things going.
3: Joining the formula or Baja team or building a robot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean from from my experience, I had you know, I'd been around machine shops uh, as as a as a high schooler and I'd taken a drafting course in college because they still had those drafting courses. And so I was, I was familiar with 3D representations and hidden views and that kind of stuff. But my first job after I graduated was, uh, with Allison Transmission, uh, in Indianapolis. And, and they made, uh, this department made, uh, transmissions for, uh, military vehicles. Okay. And so these were, you know, roughly, you know, three foot by three foot by three foot cubes. And it was, it was made from one gigantic sand casting. <laughs> they're, they were aluminum, but they had all the passages for the, for the hydraulic shifting, right? You, you, at some point you had hydraulic, you would build hydraulic pressure and it would compress a spring and that would open up the valve to allow you to shift to the next gear, that kind of thing. And so these, uh, these, uh, uh, blueprints for these transmission housings were gigantic. I mean, they were, they would take up these huge, huge boards. So they were, I don't know, you know, three foot tall and, you know, 12 foot wide or something. And you, they'd have all these views and cross sections. And I remember uh, being out of, you know, out of school and looking at those and going, I haven't a clue what they're trying to tell me. And, uh, the guys that, uh, were there on the, on the floor, the inspectors were kind enough and some of the other engineers would take some time and show me and, you know, okay here, if we're looking this way and you see this passage and coming this way, and then we'd walk over to the transmission housing and they'd go, okay, see down here, and then take out their little flashlight and shine a light down the little hole in the bore that, you know, turned three or four times. Okay, that's what we're looking at. Now let's go back over to the blueprint. You know, let's look at it. And just by doing that, by, you know, the end of, uh, you know, three or six months, I wasn't you know, I wasn't the world's greatest blueprint reader, but I was pretty good. I could I could diagnose what was going on and understand what the uh, what the dimensioning was talking about. So, I definitely believe that this you know this this uh, spatial reasoning is something that can be uh, you may have you may have some innate ability, but certainly uh, you can you can improve your uh, capacity for for doing three D thinking.
4: Yeah, yeah, and there's actually a pretty good pretty good uh, research out there. Um, there's a meta analysis by David Utall, one of my colleagues. Um, David Miller, um, mm-hmm. Diane Halpern—they've been doing a lot of research. Nora Newcomb also, um, and they've been doing a lot of research on just—it's a really big area of can we train spatial ability or spatial reasoning, um, and will that help us, you know, get more STEM professionals, for example, in the workforce? Mm-hmm. And you know, it seems like there is some promise to that. Um, I, I, you know, the only caution I would have with all training, for example, there's a huge like Lumosity promises, you know, increasing your IQ or other skills and You know, obviously we know that there are limits to training too. So, so there's always going to be some limits, but, um, obviously that, you know, for a lot of people in the school system, I think that, you know, they have never been, if they've never really been exposed to spatial thinking or different tasks, then, you know, it's very hard to start that training. So whereas everyone else, for example, knows exposed to reading, writing, that kind of stuff. Right.
0: And, and is that true throughout the uh, schooling process? I mean, from kindergarten on up, there is no spatial training. You know, I'm sure that there are pockets of it. I, I would not say, you know, every time I
4: write an article about this and I'm trying to get the message out there just because standardized tests, for example, like uh, through K-12, the SAT, the ACT, even the GRE, you know, before you go to grad school, um, no spatial Mm -hmm. measure. Right. Um, And uh, you know, I think it's a real problem if you know across the board. You know, teachers, for example, and there's another. Here's another example: teachers, for example, are not particularly high spatial relative to other groups. So, if you if you have people who are at the head of the classroom selecting people who are not very high spatial, um, it's hard to actually see how they would value high spatial ability or reasoning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I you know, I I really think that uh, there needs to be more of a, a focus on training. Um, spatial talent. I think the maker movement, have you heard of that? Sure. Um, so that, I think that's one
3: favorite helping. topics.
4: Yeah. So that, the maker movement, I think is helping. I think it's actually pretty cool now. Um, and people aren't connecting that always to spatial talent, but that's really where, um, I think a lot of kids who in the past may have missed out, they're maybe getting something there. So.
0: Yeah. And one of the other areas that I was, uh, as I was sort of prepping for, for our discussion this evening. Uh, was learning that there seems to be some sort of relationship not only between spatial reasoning and problem solving, you know, 3D problem solving, but that seems to, uh, translate into greater creativity as well.
4: Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I, I think, you know, um, you probably, I think you've talked on the engineering commons about creativity before. Um, but engineering, you know, is, is a very creative discipline. And I think a lot of people, idolize you know actors dancers artists musicians writers you know we think about those as typically creative right um right but i don't i don't see that in the cultural conversation about engineers as much as it should be um i think i think that should be a you know engineer should I, I, yeah go ahead sorry
1: well uh, john i can't help but ask is there a clinical definition of creativity
4: you know what I would say there's a field of creativity in psychology. Um, there's a field. I would say that everyone has a different verbal definition and, (laughs) and this is what it comes sorry.
1: It's like innovation. Everyone, everyone has it, but nobody can describe it.
4: Well, everyone wants to describe it differently and own it differently with their words. Right.
1: Exactly. yeah. Yeah. And
4: I, and that's, that's a major problem. I think that, uh, it, what matters is what you can measure. And, um, You know, for example, you know, in some of my research i have shown that you can actually use just the math portion of the SAT at age 12 to predict, you know, pretty creative STEM-related outcomes like 20, 30 years later. Um, That's some of my research. So with uh, David Lubinsky and Camilla Benbow.
3: What what kind of markers are you looking for? Just the fact that they can solve problems above their, you know, their grade level or?
4: Oh, um, for example, sorry, I didn't talk about patents, for example, 20 years later, um, earning a STEM Ph.D., um, publishing a STEM publication, even earning STEM tenure, um, hmm. higher income, all these things all connected to, to math, math reasoning at age 12.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, so you said you, you give them the actual SAT meant for seniors at yeah. age 12.
4: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah.
3: So then like their ability to solve like the, the math above their level or just how how they think through the problem or are the markers you're looking for?
4: Kind of. Yeah. And so it functions in a little different way, right? Um, Nowadays, maybe, you know, with all the test prep flying around, a lot of the kids actually have seen most of the content, Uh Um, but the SAT typically tries to be a kind of a reasoning test, right? And probably for younger students, it functions more that way.
3: Yeah, I think I remember being told, you're not penalized for guessing, you're penalized for leaving it blank or something like that. Trying to think back to all those years ago.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and and, and the SAT has changed a lot too now. It's an easier test than it was in the past, so... Mm -hmm.
0: So and, and that reminds me, John, we, we talked about general intelligence earlier, uh, yeah. but it was uh news to me that it looks like the human race is getting smarter over time. Is that true? I mean do, do you feel that's true? No, I feel <laughs> I feel dumber every
4: day that goes by. Well, that's because you got such young co hosts. So <laughs> well, I I mean, you know, there's something called the Flynn Effect. Have you, have you have you all heard of that or no?
3: Uh, That's No. Nope. I did
4: because I prepped for the show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A for <F> for me. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, across the last 80 years uh, on standardized tests, it seems that we are getting technically smarter in terms of the s- scores are rising, um, mostly on nonverbal me- uh, reasoning measures. Um, so the math portions of tests, um, some visual types of tests, things like that. And it it turns out that we don't know why that is. Uh, it's one of the areas that um, my research and everyone loves speculating as to why that is, but no one really understands why yet at this point.
0: Okay, and and is there any sign that the verbal skill is decreasing? Oh, because we yeah. seem to be such a a visual uh, society these days. Omg, Jeff, you're just uh, you know so <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Lol. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, verbal, I, I mean, the, the Flint effect is mostly not on the verbal measures. So. Okay. So to, to answer the question, yeah, I would say, um, we're definitely becoming more visual society.
0: Okay. Think about the. And, and so. it, is there any, uh, geographic difference? I mean, is there any part of the world where we see noticeable differences in verbal or mathematical or spatial skills? So
4: if I remember the research correctly and don't, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe that for example, East Asians tend to have higher spatial relative to their verbal. Um, For -hmm. example, the Chinese language is a very spatial language. Um, It might be why there are a lot of engineers, you know? Um, Sure. And um, especially people who move here, right? Like even my parents, for example, I'm Chinese by the way. Um, And uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I'm not sure about the U.S. I really don't know compared to other countries, but I do know um,
0: East Asia, for example is,
4: is typically higher spatial.
0: Okay. Uh, and, and what about the, the, the difference in spatial reasoning between men and women? Yep. There are, there are differences. It's probably, there are some
4: math differences too. It's much smaller. Um, verbal differences are almost small to none. Some I, they mostly favor females actually. Um, but, mm-hmm. the, but the main difference actually is, uh, in the right, far right tail of the distribution. So, um, uh, good literature on that would be Diane Halpern's book, Sex Differences and Cognitive Abilities. Um, the key is, uh, there are pretty big differences at the tails, but pretty small differences at the averages of distributions.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Interesting. With respect to the increasing, te- uh, um, test scores or i guess math ability Mm -hmm. as demonstrated by test scores have they ruled out changes in testing methodologies
4: um not entirely um so so it could just be that to some degree yeah it's very hard to determine what's happened you know and you have to build this huge empirical map and write. how do you know across time which factors have really caused what right it's very Mm -hmm. very difficult Um, global warming yeah.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, more more of the world is covered in water. There's more fish. Fish don't have a language. Boom. <laughs> it's my next paper.
0: <laughs> uh, so, John, you've talked about writing articles about the importance of uh, spatial testing, mm-hmm. and you've also uh, published research showing that uh, these these spatial skills are important to uh, the STEM fields. Yeah. So. What you know? What are the uh, the political or other you know influences that factor into the fact that these uh, these uh, tests, like the SAT uh, test, don't have any section for spatial aptitude?
4: You know, I, I think it's a it's a huge issue. Um, I think the one of the reasons why they don't is because the ETS or a lot of the testing companies they try to remove gender differences before they even put a test out. Otherwise, they'll be heavily criticized, right? So Ah, that's for, for those reasons, um, it, uh, including a spatial measure would, um, no matter what they did would probably show a sex difference. Um, it'd be very hard to remove that. Hmm. And, um, well, you know, and, 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 you know, it's still, you're still going to filter people to some degree whether you use a measure or not. Um, but I do think it misses out, especially on a lot of kids, um, from, who are talented in spatial, spatial ability, but, uh, come from lower income backgrounds, it turns out. So.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And, and so, uh, um, w- so what's the effect of that? So we have yeah. students who, uh, young people that may be very gifted spatially, mm-hmm. but that's not measured on our standardized tests. So what's, what's the effect to them and what's the effect to us as a society? Well, as a society, right? You know, we can, let's think about it. So if from K to 12,
4: all you get, you get tested on are, Math, verbal, writing measures, right? Um, that's – you value what's being tested. So the teachers value that. Um, you're told that your scores are only on these, you know, three measures. And, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much that's what you begin to see yourself as, you know, that's what's valued. You know, maybe outside of school you're lucky and you have a parent who, you know, is, is a mechanical engineer or something. And, you know, they they try to you know, teach you to work with your hands or build things Um But not everyone has those opportunities. So if you're relying on the school system, I think that that's a huge, huge issue. And also, those tests are used as gatekeepers to every single thing, right? Whether it's into Mm -hmm. a magnet school program, whether it's to college, whether it's to grad school. So that alone
0: should be a concern,
4: I think. Right. I don't know how you feel about that, but.
0: Well, I you know i I think the spatial reasoning is really important to the engineering field, and yeah. i the the people that I've worked with uh in industry uh generally have really strong uh spatial reasoning skills yes. uh, you know I, we'll sit there and we'll chat informally about well if this thing was situated behind that beam and then it came up over the top. Then this is what it would look like. And we all stand there we shake our heads up and yeah, that would work. But then, you know, then somebody'd signal, yeah, but you need to take care of the wire coming across that, that, you know, cross panel. And we all shake our heads up and down. Yeah, we all understand that. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a group, mm-hmm. we're standing there, three, four, five engineers, all with at least a, a comparable level of, of spatial reasoning, because without anybody drawing a diagram, we can all imagine what these uh, spatial reconfigurations look like. Uh, but but if I talk with my non-engineering friends, uh, then I can't get very far down the path of something on top of a beam without having to s- sit down and sketch out a uh, something on a napkin.
4: Yeah, you know that just brought up an interesting thought that you know part of the reason why people may not value a lot of engineering um, and a lot of ideas is because they simply can't understand it. Hmm. Um, if you can't, if you can't, for example, if you can't understand what someone else is thinking who's an engineer, I mean. How can you actually see it as creative or value? You can't. So I think that's a huge part of it.
0: Um, so we all understand music, so that can be appreciated?
4: More so. I mean, at a very basic level. I mean, experts in <laughs> right. music would say that they, you know, you, the the layman can't really, you know, understand the nuances of the music and so on if it's classical and so on, right? So right. so it depends. Um, but, But in terms of, yeah, if you don't have enough spatial talent, I mean, how would you? be
2: able to see nuances. You can't, probably not.
4: not, 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 in that aspect.
2: It comes back to engineers are just smarter than everybody else.
4: Hey, it's, <laughs> hey, it's truth, you know,
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> on average, of course there, there's huge variation across <laughs> groups, right? So
0: I should qualify that. Right. Now uh, you mentioned John earlier that uh, engineers tend to, value working with things more than uh, working with others. Right. And so is that, is, is that a, is that a trend or, or a, a feature or a characteristic just of engineers, or does it have something to do with this uh, spatial reasoning ability? You know, it, there, there are things called trait clusters. So Philip
4: Ackerman talks a lot about this um, where, you know, people who tend to be high in spatial also tend to, um, be more interested in things so that when those two different types of things are correlated, you get a higher population with those two things, um, higher for those people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of true. I would say, I mean, it depends on a lot of things, but does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I'm always wondering whether, you know, uh, the whole bit about our engineers, uh, Educated and trained, are they mm-hmm. made, are they, are they come, you know, is there something in their background that makes them innately uh, or, or not innately, but, but, you know, it sort of drives them into the field of engineering and they feel more comfortable in engineering. Um, and I suspected that there was, there might be something between the, uh the spatial reasoning ability, which made you yeah. able to move comfortably in spatial reasoning, which is, tends to be objects uh as opposed to you know say a verbal ability which which requires you generally a communication with someone else
4: yeah I, I i'm not sure about that um again i would say i using my personal example um my parents wanted me to be an engineer and um i didn't want to do that so <laughs> i'll just tell you i i think that people you know even you know very smart people who have different strengths i mean they they'll do what they want to do you know and so interests have a huge role to play I do think abilities, the pattern of abilities play, connect with that too. Right. Despite any kind of, you can force people to, you know, work with their hands or try to build things and they will get better. But uh, if they don't really want to do it, they're not going to do it, you know, so.
0: Right. I, I Just my th- quick thought was, are there any uh, any research from uh, some of the, um, you know, in the past there have been some nations where, where uh, children were evaluated at a young age and assigned that, you know, you would be an engineer and you would be a doctor uh, and that sort of thing. Okay. And, and for individuals being assigned to a career path, they really weren't interested in, is there any kind of research on what, what that did to them or, or what the result was?
4: So you think of like a uh, certain European countries that track really early? Yeah, I think that's probably, I I don't know the specific research off the top of my head.
0: Okay. Um, on on the other hand, I didn't, you know, when I, when I, it came time for me to go to college, I really didn't want to be an engineer, but my, uh, my father was an engineer and I had other friends going into engineering. I was like, I don't know what else to do. So let's go into engineering. And I kind of, it kind of grew on me. I must say okay. <laughs> it was, if, if I really thought I was going to be a writer when I, when I was a, you know, junior or senior in high school. And all of a sudden I found myself in engineering, uh, college and, and sort of, you know, swimming, you know, paddling hard to keep my nose above the water, but, uh, it kind of grew on me. I like it these days. It's good. So we've, we've talked some about, uh, uh, studying the abilities of youth and you've talked about, uh, testing, uh, youngsters that are, you know, 12 years old or something. And I know you're involved in, uh, a, uh, research, uh, that's called the study of mathematically precocious youth. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So that was, um,
4: a longitudinal study, uh, started by Julian Stanley in the early 1970s. Um, and now it's led by Dave Lubinsky and Camilla Benbow at Vanderbilt. And this, this study basically tested a bunch of 12 year olds, um, in the early 1970s in a number of different cohorts, about 5,000 of them, um, in the top 1% of intellectual talent. And now these kids have been followed up into midlife actually. Um, so now there's some research coming out of Vanderbilt, um, you can Google David Lubinsky and you can find all those papers. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because they're now, you know, uh, it, uh, midlife. It's about age 50 now. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, they've turned out to be extremely successful adults. Um, so so what, one interesting story about that is there was a prior talent search um, by Louis Terman. Have you heard that name? Um, yeah, he was at uh, Stanford, wasn't yes, he? Yes. And, and Terman had a talent search using a test called the Stanford Binet, um, IQ test. And, Mm -hmm. um, he identified Richard Nixon, um, at the time as a kid, um, and Nixon went on to be, you know, who he is. Um, and, but, 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 (laughs) but, uh, missed, uh, William Shockley and Luis Alvarez. Um, okay. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the potential reasons, um, could be, um, that the Stanford Binet is highly verbal and didn't have a spatial measure.
0: So, Hmm. Interesting. And, and so what have we learned anything from this study of precocious youth that, that tells us more about how we should be, uh, treating, you know, either, either those that are extremely gifted or the rest of our, uh, children or is there some valuable insight? Well, I, I think the first thing, of course, is
4: that we need to, we need to test and identify students early. You can't develop talent if you don't know which people have the propensity for development of that talent. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if kids go miss, they may never know, right? Um, right. I, I, another, another area of research that, that I've been working on is, um, something called the idea of educational dose. And of course, this is just a term, but the idea is basically, um, in some of our research, we showed that people with the higher STEM density of experiences. So in other words, um, did you participate in a math science fair? Did you participate in STEM research? Um, to the extent that pe- students who, participated in more things in their childhoods versus less, um, tended to have a higher um, STEM educational dose, and they ended up earning significantly higher STEM outcomes as a group. Um, hmm. So just the basic common sense idea that if you want to become great in STEM, you should have a lot of experiences in STEM throughout your life. Um, wow. If that makes sense. It does make sense. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty common sense.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow it. Thank you. appreciate that. <laughs> so john you have a uh it, it looks like a uh series a web series uh called uh, finding the next einstein uh, that shows up on psychology today can you tell us a little bit about that um yeah so you know i started blogging there um and i, st- I
4: kind of wanted to write a and i the the idea of finding the next einstein is not really that i think i'm going to find that person right but mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, if we can find the next person who would change the world in the way Einstein did, you know, that could be kind of cool. Um, right. And, you know, really, the idea was to emphasize the search for talent and developing that talent. It's something really worthwhile um, because we I, I personally think we need to invest in talented kids for our future. I mean, I think the younger generation always is going to invent things for us. Right. So. um I don't know. And I, and I, and I think, you know, especially helping spatially talented kids who might go undernoticed in the typical school system, it's an important part of that. And, um, so I've been, you know, writing there for across all kinds of things, doing interviews, um, writing about everything from education to engineering to pretty much, you know, does an Ivy league education matter? So. Um, right. And does it, um, you know what I used to think, no, but now, you know, um, I did, a, did some research recently, um, looking at the U.S. elite and the world elite, um, pretty much all the politicians, um, senators, house members, um, federal judges, billionaires, uh, people who attend the World Economic Forum, um, all kinds of elite journalists, um, pretty much people that control a lot of, you know, the power levers, levers in society. And, you know, it's unusual how many people went to Harvard, for example, or, A huge percentage went to an elite school in some capacity. So, whether that's the causal reason for their success, I don't know. But um, I'm beginning to believe an elite school does have some kind of role for a lot of these people. Whether that means, you know, opening doors for them because that's what it takes or something like that, I'm not sure. So,
1: yeah, are are you controlling for capability or cronyism?
4: Exactly. I am not. And this is where it is completely correlational and descriptive. And I think that it's a combination of a lot of different things. I do think that the huge overrepresentation, um, for example, if you look at the Forbes most powerful men list alone, 40.7% of them went to Harvard in some capacity. Um, now that includes a number of people like politicians, CEOs and stuff like that. Right. But. If 40.7% 40 40. went to Harvard in some way, I mean, it doesn't mean Harvard's the causal, causal reason, right? Obviously, they're all pretty smart, too. Um, they're obviously very motivated and power-hungry to some degree. But at the same time, uh, the school probably did open up networks for them, cronyism, whatever you want to call it. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: What's to say that other factor, the the factors that helped them get into Harvard right. weren't what helped them become successful?
4: I completely agree with you. I cannot entirely rule that out. Nope. Um, and I used to argue that it was really personal characteristics that made people successful, not any kind of um, branding through a school, right? But we know that resumes may get looked at or not looked at based on where people go to school, right? Um, whether who you know right? Gets you a job sometimes or oftentimes, um, mm-hmm. I would say. So, so it, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of both there are all these different factors. It's, it's in a really interesting area. I'm, it's just, uh,
1: um, so. Well, wasn't there work, uh, by somebody at a Dartmouth that said when they controlled for people who had the capability to get into Harvard right. and chose not to go there, that there was, there was no, Advantage to going to an elite, 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 uh, institution as opposed to a state school.
4: Yes. I think it was, uh, Kruger and Dale or something. I think they controlled for a number of factors. Um, they followed yeah. up income long term, I believe. Um, and that's, yes. that's true. Yes. So, you know, economists and so, uh, social scientists, we can control for only, you know, we can control for whatever we can control for. Um, uh, what I'm talking about is actually looking at the elite people retrospectively seeing where they went to yeah. school. Um, that I would, the only way to reconcile these two areas of research, you know, I've been thinking about this. I think part of it is is really, you know, I'm looking at extreme, extreme, extreme right tail achievement, right? Um, and, and those studies don't quite account for that. Now that's where I don't, it could still be personal factors are the major driving force. Um, at the same time, if the elite has such a huge number of people going to Harvard and all these other elite schools, Right. Um, you have to wonder why that is too, if that's just the filtering mechanism in the U S. Um, I'm not sure.
1: It would be really interesting to look at H indexes, uh, people's career publishing indexes, because presumably that would be less affected by people's social networks.
4: That's, that's a great idea. Um, I believe some, some of my research, uh, some research by my colleague Gregory Park looked at patents um, mm-hmm. he's looking also at not age indexes, but something like it, something close to that. Um, but yeah, no, that, that'd be a cool, cool area to do some research. I absolutely agree.
0: Yeah. I seem to remember that, uh, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell had a, an article or two about the, uh, position you were in your class. And so it was, it was better to be number one at a non-elite university. Right. You know, if you if you were at the top of your class from the University of Missouri, you were likely to achieve more than if you were second in your class at Harvard. And because all the bright people were going to Harvard, it was it was more difficult to be at the top of the class. So no matter what your your raw ability was, uh you you always saw yourself as number two. You weren't the best. And so you didn't uh, uh at least the research I see, I don't I think it was uh, Malcolm Gladwell. It was and Gladwell. And else. But uh, you were you were less likely to have the output uh, being number two at Harvard than you would uh, being number one at at some non elite university.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a possibility there for sure. I think it it really depends on the individual. It depends on a lot of different factors.
0: So okay, um, so, so having taken a look at uh, you know, testing, you know, natural ability. Uh, whether you're, you've gone to an elite school, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your assessment now? You know, how much is, uh, if you look at someone's success in life, and we can argue about how you measure success, but, uh, however you want to measure it, uh, how much of that is due to natural ability? And how much is hard work? And how much is just dumb luck?
4: Well, you know, um, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, big discussion going on right now. That you know, people talk about the ten thousand hour rule. You might have heard of that, right? Um, what makes an expert? You know, everyone, all the headlines are are experts born or made, right? Every everyone right. asks that, and that's I to me, it's I, every every expert is bo- first born and then made. I mean, to me, that that question doesn't make sense. The distinction, um, but you know, of course, you know, I think talent, hard work, and luck in nearly every circumstance in different measure for different people matters. Right. Um, I I would say though that a lot of people don't want to talk about talent as much. They'll talk about hard work. They'll talk about luck. Um, they'll talk about the underdog story. Right. But, but talent absolutely matters. Um, and it's something that without enough talent, it's very hard to have work hard enough or have enough or be able to make your luck, for example, um, to to make it to the top. Um, Mm -hmm. so so i don't know what what all you think i mean this is a pretty interesting area to talk about so
1: (laughs) well i mean if you want to want to quantify luck as or describe luck as uh access to opportunities or Mm -hmm. the serendipitous access to opportunities you can't discount that i don't know that whole conversation has always made me very uncomfortable which which part of it sorry Luck makes me very uncomfortable. Luck test.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> it, it makes you uncomfortable in what regard, Brian, that, that some people have more luck than others or, or any, any thought that luck plays a role at all in, in a person's success?
1: Uh, I, I dislike the fact that luck plays a role, a significant role in people's success. And I, I, I hate to say it, I mean, it is a significant mm-hmm. uh I mean, if if you look at if if you look at those that have been extremely successful, oftentimes people have had equivalent ideas or even better ideas, and did not often end up with the same level of financial or or uh, academic success. You know, who got the data first, et cetera. You know, the Alexander Graham Bell first a patent by what hours? Days, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, the also runs in history are probably the most uncomfortable thing that I ever read.
0: So you're uncomfortable just with the sense that it's, it seems unfair. It's unjust for this, this to be the case.
1: Yes. Well, not unjust, but it's, you know, your worst nightmare is to prepare, strive, achieve, and have that achievement be negated by time and opportunity. Okay. Right. I mean uh, maybe I'm the only one who dwells on this
4: do do you feel more so you're leaning more towards a merit based kind of thing is
1: that well does that describe society or does that is that something that I would uh prefer
4: i guess in an ideal world
1: uh yeah of course okay i mean i think our our ideal world most i think most technical people's ideal world is some sort of you know technocratic meritocracy yeah, that's true <laughs> I, I think most of our <laughs>
2: I'll,
1: I'll throw that out there well no actually i don't i don't believe that's the case for most people well i i, I maybe non-technical types but at the same time i think we tend to trust expertise than i think more than the general population at least in the united states right now um
4: Can I ask a question about, um, the engineering field? So how much do you think talent really matters in engineering? Like if you're great in engineering, um, say compared to another field, you know, do connection, how much do connections matter? You know, things like that.
1: I'd say I'll just answer first. I'd say not connections, but ability to, ability in the moment to not marginalize your opinion. Hmm. So yes, technical ability matters profoundly, okay. but it can be undercut by personal quirks or behavior mechanisms that cause you to undermine your own ability okay. or at least people's perception of your ability or willingness to, um, hear you out. Um, I, and I always say that because I know at least a couple extraordinarily brilliant people that oftentimes have a difficult time convincing people, decision makers that
2: they have a point or initiate action, if you will. Yeah. I'd I'd maybe take a little different approach to it than that, that technical ability is required to a point. And if you can meet a minimum level of technical ability, I don't know if it's connections, but ability to form and foster connections. Hmm. I, mean, I, I think that at least in my field, you'll get the opportunity to make the connections, whether you can sustain them is, is more important.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, uh, Dr. Trevelyan talked about how uh, like 60% of an engineer's job is in communicating with others. And like 30% of the job is coordinating and supervising the actions of others. Uh, even though engineers, Tend to think only what they only when they're sitting down and and cranking out an equation. That's engineering. Everything, all the rest of it's sort of fluff. But that's what engineers do is is this coordinating activities and and having these inner interpersonal relationships. Despite the fact that uh, we tend to like things better than people.
3: And yeah, documenting and paperwork and making sure the next guy can do what you did and
0: repeatability. <laughs> yeah. So 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 the guy that can that can. You know, get straight A's in engineering school. That's wonderful. And that person has, has a, a gift, but placed into a lot of, not all, but a lot of engineering jobs that would not give them much of a, a strength because the, the engineering job is to, as uh, Adam said, is to have enough technical capability to make sure things are, you know, on track that nobody's violating, you know, quality rules or, you know uh the statistical process control is in place, or they've made sure that the uh uh the stack up on a certain assembly is going to be okay it that doesn't take you know world class calculus skills to do if they're able to do that then everything else is how well did you get along with your coworkers? Were you able to uh talk with the vendor on the phone and negotiate a an appropriate contract or an appropriate delivery time uh These are all skills that they you know we don't teach in engineering school. Uh, but are a key part of the engineering profession and so uh, it, so when you when you ask John somebody who's a good engineer or or has strong technical skills, it depends on you know I think it depends on which skills we 're talking about because in many cases it's those uh interpersonal and informal communication skills you know the ability to uh, uh, to convey an idea without writing a technical report. Uh, that, that are really important for those who are in many engineering jobs. So that
4: that's really interesting. I um, brought up a couple of things. One was it, it made me think about how certain trade clusters may be favored in engineering. So I don't know what, what that would be, but maybe social skill combined with technical skill or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, it, it, yeah, that, I think that was the only thing I thought of at this point.
0: Okay. So, so, so the people that I think of as being great engineers that I've, I've run across, uh, were very strong technically, but they were also very good instructors. And so, uh, you know, I can think of three or four engineers that I've met over, you know, my career that they could, uh, take me out onto the shop floor and explain how something was being manufactured And explain it to me in a way that I could understand. And we could see it physically, spatially. And then we'd walk back into the, uh, into the office and they would say, okay, here's what this means, uh, from the design standpoint. And they would start, you know, drawing out equations and they'd draw out a free body diagram. And now we'd start doing equations and then show, okay, uh, this, this beam can take this much torsion. And here's why it can take so much torsion. And here's how we can weld a piece onto it to, uh, meet our spatial restrictions, but still improve the performance of the beam, something like that. You know, so, so the really great engineers were strong, uh, mathematically. They could do the equations. They were strong spatially. They could show how it got manufactured and where it fit. And they were strong, uh, maybe not so much verbally, but with interpersonal relationships and in that they were able to explain, they were able to teach in a manner that was easy to understand.
4: So communication is a, you know, is
0: teaching kind of. Yeah. And I think that, uh, we've, we've joked here on the, on the podcast before about it, but, uh, there's, with engineers, there's this informal relationship or informal communication in that we've, since we've all had the same math, we can talk about something, you know, a balancing equation or, or, uh, you know, a uh, perturbation or something. You know, we can, we can somehow reference something that we know about and there becomes this informal dialogue. Uh, where we're not writing out full equations. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just, I was reading a paper last night about, uh, they were talking about the importance of math skills to practicing engineers. And it's not their explicit math skills that seem to be most important, but their tacit math skills. Those math skills that they're not even aware of that they carry around. Uh, but the, you know, the ability to, you know, to judge and estimate, uh, seem to be the, the important factors for those who are strong in the
2: engineering profession. Okay. Yeah, to the point it's, at some point, math changes from maybe a subject in school to a, a, a language. And, um, it's more of a a type of shorthand and not actually about solving problems. Is that kind of what you're saying? Sort of?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. So is, that, is that any of this uh, surprising to you, John? Or, Well, I mean, considering all your shorthand and
4: I, I, what I'm curious about is, is the engineering world more of a meritocratic kind of thing in the sense that you have this shorthand and if it, is a good idea recognized more quickly? Uh, um, does red tape still stop it? You know, because in other areas... Yeah, it, oh, there's <laughs> plenty of red tape. <laughs> okay, yeah. right. I know. But I'm just curious no, it's, if it's uh, different what? within, you know, engineering versus other fields.
1: As somebody who, um, I guess my, my world collides a lot with the business world, ah, you know, okay. with my wife, etc. there is a, at least in terms of communication, there is a bluntness that, and, um, kind of a acquiescent to the common pursuit of the problem that often engineers have that I do not experience inside of other fields. That may lend itself more to a, a meritocracy. A feeling that the problem is far more important than the best technical solution is far more important than the people that deliver it <laughs> <laughs> or even how it's delivered. Such that, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I don't know what everyone else's relationship status is, but interacting with my wife who's not technical during the early parts of her relationship and saying phrases like no and that's not right very blunt and technical descriptions of things. (laughs) And I, you know, I I mean, it's, it, it is funny and it wasn't at the time for myself, but it became very clear that I have developed a way of talking about things that is very at ease with those type of adjectives about, um, or the uh, descriptions and, and conversing about something that's very direct and very objective that, is not common elsewhere.
4: Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Cons-
1: uh, consensus does not matter, I guess that's a, a uh, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It's less important. The
2: correct solution matters.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the correct solution matters.
2: Well, and I I think that there's a maybe it's not a spoken consensus that when the correct solution comes up everyone recognizes it and, and accepts it. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to come down to a, a vote or anything of, okay, which one's the best? They all, Everybody's kind of, oh, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the best solution. Yeah, objective as opposed to subjective. Yeah. yeah. I, I also see more of
3: an ability to dive into a problem and start working on a solution faster instead of, you know, I don't want to say wallowing. That's too strong of a word or, you know. You know, coming to grips with a problem, it's more of okay, yeah, this is what's wrong. Let's let's just figure it out and you know dive in and start trying solutions as opposed to sitting around, be you know bullshitting or complaining. <laughs> or I'm at a loss for what exactly I want to say there, but I hope it's coming across. <laughs> it's just yeah, accept this is the situation. Let's try stuff
0: until it's improved. Now you raise an interesting point there, Carmen, in that. My understanding that a lot of expert area experts their expertise is contextual uh and so i'm I'm curious uh John whether there's any research into you know if you have this talent at a young age okay are you a it, does it matter what field you go into or are you you know well you know obviously if you're strong spatially you want to go into something where you can use your spatial skills, but right. you know it doesn't matter what context you go into? Uh, whether you're able to fully develop those skills?
4: I mean, probably. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. Okay. Well, we're just, we're proposing future research opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of research opportunities. I mean, I think this is one of the, it's an important area. Um, One thing that came up uh, just now, though, when you guys were talking was, um, do engineers ever dream of like solving the world's problems outside of engineering? With engineering, like, you know, kind of. Right, right. So say you, you see all the problems out there. And... Yes. Right? Do you? Okay, I'm
3: curious. Oh, my God. Every time I go to the deli, it is set up so inefficiently, and I just want to, like, become manager for a month and set it straight so I can get my ham, my turkey, and my cheese in under a half an hour. I feel out so many customer satisfaction surveys, but they don't change anything.
1: See, John, John I think to solve the world to, to... – Walk around the world uh, trying to solve the world's problems requires a degree of optimism that
2: is slowly drained from you <laughs> as you get into your career. It, it seems like we've got stages here. Brian, you've given up hope, and I'm, I've am i gotten to the point I just keep my mouth shut, and Carmen's still optimistic that uh, he can change the world. Oh, no, I'm going to fill out the surveys every chance I get. So,
3: to, until my rewards card becomes flagged and then they just don't print it out on my receipt. <laughs> I've got my trees on deli efficiency
1: all ready to go.
4: Well, you know. So, John. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, what if more people thought like engineers or, you know, that might help.
1: Pessimistically? <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, I meant that in a good way. I think, you know, the problem-solving approach of, you know, there's a real solution to things, right? and everyone sees it when it shows up, that's, that's, that'd be great. Right. That would salt, cut a lot of time out of the equation. So
1: I've often thought about what government would look like <laughs> if, uh, if if ideas actually had to endure some level of empirical feedback. Right, yeah. 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 This bill will do this <laughs> and you actually set some sort of sunset period and conditions, automatic gateway conditions like, no, nope, uh, well that didn't lower unemployment by 5%. So that law is gone. Yeah. It would be a
0: good idea. They really would. We'll tell you what, John, we should probably, uh, think about wrapping this up and, and, uh, letting you go for the evening. Okay. Um, so what, uh, do, might you have any ad- advice for, our, uh, for our listeners? Any, any, uh, insight from your research into the area of spatial reasoning? Um, No advice on engineering. I'm not an engineer.
4: Um, But, uh, you know, I think that uh, for the engineers or people who are listening who have kids with spatial talent, you know, make sure your kids get challenged, you know, that's what you can do for them. Um, If they're not being tested, um, I think it's important to at least try to provide opportunities for them. So. Rip.
3: If you own a deli, keep the scales next to the slicer, not across the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like this was a fresh
2: wound.
3: Oh, yeah! Episode eighty-one: How to set up a deli. I got the show notes.
2: <laughs> you know, Carmen, I'm going to assume that the owner of your uh, neighborhood deli probably doesn't listen to the show. <sighs> they should. I'm going to hack the PA system. <laughs> have you ever
4: tried? Have you called them up or anything? Or
3: uh, just doing the surveys so far. Okay. There's always so much effort I want to go through.
1: As passive-aggressively <laughs> as possible.
3: <laughs> uh, well, it's better when I tag team. If I go with my wife and, you know, one of one of us will go wait at the deli, usually her because she won't get as bad. Uh, and then I run around and do literally all the rest of the shopping and I'm sitting in line to pay and she comes up with the
0: deli meat. But I've touched a nerve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll let you handle that during the coming weeks and we'll, we'll revisit that in future episodes. I'm out of
3: beer. I can't talk about this.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, so, John, if someone is interested in your research or wants to get a hold of you, uh, where do you recommend that we direct them? Um, you can just, uh, my webpage, I guess. Okay.
4: Right. W- and which web? Which web page is um, that? So you can, you can, if you just, if you Google my name, Jonathan way, it should come up. Okay. Um, I'm on Twitter,
0: Jonathan L way. Um, and, uh, yep. Fantastic. We will we'll put that information in the uh, show notes of that. If anyone is interested in finding out more about you and your research, they can, they can do so. Okay. Thanks. Well, thank you so very, very much for uh, joining us and, uh, Helping uh, give us a little insight into the role and purpose and meaning of spatial reasoning.
4: Yeah. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
1: The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.